This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. I'm going to drag you out. What? You're strapped in an electric chair, and I'm going to throw the switch, and I'm going to totally electrocute you. And you're flailing around, and we'll rig something where smoke and sparks shoot out of your nose. And then once you're dead, I'll throw you onto the operating table, and I'll cut you open, and I pull link sausages out of you, and I throw them into the crowd. That's it? Well, I mean, we can take a bow or something, but yeah, that's it. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 207. Here's a Boo Crew Fright Fact. In 1956, The Bad Seed, the piano piece that Rhoda plays and sings as a theme throughout the film, is the traditional French children's song, Eau Claire de la Lune. This time around, you are joined by the dramatically awesome singer-songwriter Phoebe Bridgers. Hang out as she talks about her love of all things spooky, true crime, Harry Potter and Gilmore Girls, death metal, witchcraft, creepy art. Her outstanding and, at time of release, Grammy-nominated album, Punisher, is available everywhere. It's all on episode 207, which starts right about now. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for ah! Horror Homework. All right, we're going to go around the room and around the World Wide Web all the way out to Leo in beautiful downtown. <laughs> to each highlight a horror flick to each other and possibly even to you that we consider a must-see or perhaps worth a revisit, starting as usual with Leo. What are you signing this week? Guys, I watched something controversial. Oh, what? I like that. And this is a movie that it popped up on like a YouTube video that I watched. Like, oh, controversial movie. Warner Brothers made it and like it's difficult to find and it's in pieces and the director is like, you know, it's all like one big scattered story of, of like what happened to this movie. It's got the a mythology 19- behind it. It does. Very controversial for its time. Uh, it came out in 1971 and it's called The Devils. It's, uh, wow. <laughs> That's all I could say. It's written and directed by Ken Russell and you'll also known by another movie he made in 1980 called Altered States, which uh, it's, it's really good. It's based on a book by Aldous Huxley, who's known because he wrote this screenplay for Pride and Prejudice in 1940. And he's also uncredited for writing the screenplay for Alice in Wonderland 1951. This movie stars Vanessa Redgrave as Sister Jean and Oliver Reed as Father Urbane Grandier. A quick synopsis for this film is... Basically, the Cardinal Richelieu, played by Christopher Logu, and his power-hungry entourage seek to take control of 17th century France, but need to destroy Father Grandier, played by Oliver Reed, the priest who runs the fortified town that prevents them from exerting total control. So they seek to destroy him by setting him up as a warlock in control of a devil-possessed nunnery the mother superior of which is sexually obsessed by him. A mad witch hunter is brought in to gather evidence against the priest ready for a big trial. Wow, demonic nunnery. I'm in, Leo. <laughs> You're sold. <laughs> so this is more horror adjacent. It's all about the imagery. It's about the acting. It's about the props. So you're not going to see a scare in this movie, really. Just so you know, this movie's been very difficult to track down as there are scenes missing and due to the intense nature or controversial nature and censorships, it's a full-blown Warner Brothers production, which I'm sure at the time, they regret even making this film due to the controversial nature. This film is so wild in, in what you see with the sets, the costumes, the props, the themes, or acting. It reminds me of a Hol- Alejandro uh, Jodorowsky film like uh, Holy Mountain or El Topo. So if you think about that, that's kind of what you're watching. So it's a very twisted movie. You're going to see some scenes with like 
a reenactment of the crucifixion of Jesus, and then it's like, then there's sex after that. It's just bizarre, you know? There's some interesting fun facts about this. Um, the director, Ken Russell, did not want cliche religious sets of period films, so they were modeled with a futuristic design in mind. For example, the nuns live in like this convent. It looks futuristic, which is really weird, because you you're thinking of church and old brick and stone and wood and all that. It's like, no, no, no. It's like white and like marble. It's just so really bizarre looking. Also, at the time of release, this film was not only banned in Italy, but the Italian government threatened the actors, Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed, to condemn them to three years in prison if they stepped foot on their territory. That's what? crazy. What? Yes. No. Just by association? Yep. That stinks. It's it's insane. I mean, you got to remember, The Exorcist came out in 73, and that was controversial. This film comes out in 71 and just paints a story that's so bizarre, you know? I mean, it's one thing to tell a witchcraft story, but it's like, no, 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 you're going to incorporate that right into the heart of the church, you know? And you're like, oh, at times it's funny. It plays out more like a drama, but it's got some funny and it's got some weird scenes. Like, it takes place during the 17th century European France, King Louis VIII, I believe. And uh, there's, there's like scenes where like there's bodies, right, that are being thrown into a pit or hauled through the streets because, you know, the people are dying from the plague. And then there's like a random guy that walks by and just grabs a chunk of the flesh and stuffs it in his mouth. He's like, oh, good meat, you know? Oh my <laughs> gosh. I'm like, what the fuck am I watching? Um, it's just so bizarre. It's something you have to experience. It's the feel-good movie for Easter. It'll ruin your Easter Sunday with your family. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> oh, we should quote that. If you've heard of this film or are curious about it, this just went live, like, I think a week ago, maybe. It's very recent. It's currently streaming on Shudder. So it's the only place you could find it, I believe. If you're interested, check it out. It's just a bizarre, twisted movie. But something to experience because it's, you know, controversy uh, again from the 1970s. Wow. Fun for the whole family. On a related note. <laughs> oh, gosh. Ours is kind of on a related note, isn't it? it oh, really no. Unintentionally, because we don't we don't talk with each other about what we're going to talk about and bring to the table right. for horror homework. So this is a film that Lauren and I checked out that I know is definitely haunting me still. Today. Yeah. Been thinking about it a couple times. Released in 2017. Clocks in. At an hour and 26 minutes long, giving it a Sweet Scream Award. That's right. We're talking about American Guinea Pig, The Song of Solomon. Oh, boy. Leo, you checked out this one yet? Not yet. I've heard of it. I want to see it, but I've not seen it yet. Definitely put it on your to-do list. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So So it's going to ruin my Easter dinner? uh, It'll ruin everything for you for a while. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Written and directed by Stephen Byro, it stars Jessica Cameron, cult filmmaker and actor Jim Van Beber, musician Gene Palubicki from metal bands Angel Corpse and most recently Perdition Temple, and David E. McMahon. Catholic priests, one after another, try to save a woman whose demonic possession signifies the end of days. And I'm, I mean, one after the other, right? Yep. Like a line of, pri- a steady stream <laughs> of priests. And she takes wow. them down one by one. Oh, she sure does. <laughs> wow. So this thing had its premiere at Sitkiss back in 2017. And Stephen Byro's Unearthed Films released it on Blu-ray and DVD in 2018. So it's the third in the American Guinea Pig series. Now, if you don't know about the Guinea Pig series, it was originally a series of six Japanese horror films, which were the vision of a manga artist named Hadeshi Hino. And he he wanted to create filmed versions, live action versions of his manga that showcased explicit gore, torture and murder. So graphic in their nature that the urban legend is that Charlie Sheen once saw one of these allegedly thought one of them was real and contacted the FBI who investigated the filmmakers and then had to, you know, they had to prove that it was all done with special effects. So the American Guinea pig films were made as a tribute to the aesthetic of the original Japanese Guinea pig films, all done by unearthed films and consist of the following bouquet of guts and gore, blood shock song of Solomon and sacrifice. 
Lauren, what'd you think of this film? Wow. There's a lot to unpack here. You have to see it just just for the gore alone. Okay? Like it's, it's next level. It's insane. The acting was on and off sometimes. I'm but trying to be nice. No, what I'll say about the acting, Jessica Cameron, the woman who plays the possessed woman, is phenomenal. Yeah, and the shit that she talk. has to do yeah. looks not only painfully uncomfortable and shocking, but I mean, it, it looks like a workout. Oh, it sure. I does. don't know how she put up with any of it. Honestly, <laughs> like honestly, oh, wow. it is intense, and I admire her. I want to. I want to get her on the show and talk about this film. I really do. <laughs> the priests, when they had to deal with the worst parts of what they each had to deal with, their performances shine through. Now there are some performances orbiting around that you know are off and on, but I actually like that. I know. It was campy enough. I don't know. If it was way too hardcore serious as a heart attack, everything, it would have been just too much to handle. It would have been a completely different movie. Yeah. It would have been like way scary and like way different than what it is. But when it was scary, it got really scary. But the campy parts, I really enjoyed. It gave it that midnight movie feel. Get all your friends over. Watch this thing as a dare, you know, see who can make it through. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Oh, man. It was gross. Yeah. (laughs) There were some really, really (laughs) gross shots. And I got to spoil one. Can I spoil one? Uh, I have to spoil one. I guess. It doesn't, you know, I guess it doesn't really spoil any. Sure, it does. Sure, it does. Okay. (laughs) Just to describe this one scene, it's really simple to describe it. Man. I'm interested to see what scene you're going to describe. Okay. So Jessica Cameron, as the possessed girl, proceeds to vomit out her complete inner organs. Oh, God. Every single last one. (laughs) And it's a long process. Oh, yeah. It's a long, drawn out, close up camera process. You see every little thing come out of this woman's mouth. And then she proceeds to put it all back in and eat and chew every single one of her organs back through the other way. When I said, like, it is a long, drawn, I swear it's a good five minutes of footage, right? It felt like, like 50, It, it lasts forever. Yeah. And you just sit there and your jaw is on the ground. Wow. They do wow. it so well. And this is a part, I, I can't believe how she did it. I don't know how she did You can't really fake it. I mean, obviously, you're not, it's not her real organs. But how do you do that? That's why they're actors. It, I don't know. It's just not for us. The gore. Is just insane. So I, I looked up a little bit of the gore who did it. So it's odd topsy effects. And they did that movie. We are still here. Oh, I like that one. Barbara Crampton. Oh, yeah. That we loved. And that Larry was really Fessenden good. was yeah. in that. Yeah, it was so good. Yes. And, yeah. and then toe tag effects who worked on Tales of Halloween. Another great one. Oh, nice. It was crazy. Like you should just watch <laughs> it be- and just know that you're going to watch something that's just insane. And. It's fun and like I suggest like I was worried the whole time like our blinds are open. I'm like our neighbors must be like what the hell are they watching? (laughs) (laughs) This is exactly that movie like yeah if you're sitting if you if you live at your parents or whatever and you have this on this is that movie that of course they're going to walk in it's something fucking crazy on the screen and go what the what are you watching? Right. Yeah this is the one you get walked in on or your roommate or whoever what are you watching? Right. I, I questioned myself what I was watching a few times during it. And Leo, you're going to like this because apparently all the rituals that take place are actually real and from the Vatican's book of oh, rituals damn. that they do for exorcisms, some of which were really interesting to see, like the way that they gave each other the oath before they would walk into the room of the possessed girl. That helps yes. real. Yeah, that, that, it didn't help that much, but uh, it was just interesting to see. I've never seen that before. It was cool, man. I, Leo loves possession movies. So oh, this is sure right is. up his alley, man. Yep. <laughs> yeah. He's pretty excited about That's it. That's cool. Yeah, I could tell. Yeah. No, you are. <laughs> what, I am? Yes. <laughs> I don't know if Leo There is. he is. You can hear the passion. <laughs> of course I am. Okay. Yeah. The Song of Sullivan. It's a Boo Crew Dare. Wait, did you say Sullivan? Solomon. Oh, okay. Sullivan. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Monster Inc. I don't know. That's <laughs> okay. funny. Anyway, there you go. 
You don't have to rent it on Prime Video. It's free on Tubi. That's where we Oh, cool. Perfect. Scope it out. This is Phoebe Bridgers, and you're getting spooky with me and the Boo Crew. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a stunning singer-songwriter, lyricist, and producer. Her debut album, Stranger in the Alps, was released in 2017. It serves as a breathtaking welcome to rich worlds crafted from the bones of a haunted house. Her assuring and pensive voice so eloquently emanating from the cracks between the floorboards. She went on to join Julian Baker and Lucy Dacus for a project called Boy Genius, which is a wistful descent into the throes of magical storytelling and harmony that almost feels antique to the touch. Then there was the album with Better Oblivion Community Center alongside Connor Oberst, a songwriting sectum sempra that is one of the best collaborative folk albums ever made. In 2020, she returned with Punisher, a blissful meditation on trauma and finding solace in the journey, growth and enchantment that earned her incredible critical acclaim among that four Grammy nominations, including Best New Artist. The album has received rave reviews, a perfect score from Enemy, a critic pick for the New York Times, declared record of the year from over 17 publications, including Rolling Stone, Pitchfork so poignantly put that the album transformed sorrow into redemptive beauty. A reviewer for Tone Deaf said they were anxious to write anything at all about Punisher because everything that has been written about the album so far has been so intimidatingly and profoundly beautiful that they didn't want to ruin an emotional experience that felt so crucial, special, and rare. That's just the thing. Her music turns us into poets. You'd be hard-pressed to find even one article about her work or a listener who isn't beautifully reaching for words to come close to kissing the sentiment about how she makes you feel. To move people like that, especially in today's age of all the noise, is to move mountains. It's almost impossibly rare. It's because plain and simply she has achieved this alchemic magic of becoming pure inspiration. People have been finding a friend in her humor, refuge in the thoughtful lyrics, and a shelter in the darkness. It is in this grimoire of an album that Punisher has not only arrived, but has quite literally changed how people are listening to music. We are deeply honored to welcome Phoebe Bridgers. Yeah! Yeah! A new Tinder bio. (laughs) (laughs) Swipe left. Done. So, Phoebe, I mean, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. We appreciate it so much more than you know. So, how are you doing? You know, doing as good as I could possibly be during a normalized global pandemic. I'm sure y'all are too. Yeah, we're doing the best we can. There is an almost prophetic darkness to your music and visuals combined with a wry smile and a wink. From having ghosts painted over old childhood photos to creating your uniform out of a skeleton costume and singing about Halloween. The lyric book for Punisher that looks like a Victorian horror story. What is your relationship like to that aesthetic? Very close. I have a very close relationship to it. I think I find a lot of joy in kind of goth everything. It makes kind of like my, it just makes my life easier. Like that's what I look for in stories and movies. I think I just grew up around it. So, so I uh, gravitate towards it. So you're a fan of horror and dark fantasy films. Are there any that you find comfort in that you love to watch? You know, it took me a long time with horror. I think I I was pretty sheltered as my mom watched way too many scary movies when she was little and kind of sheltered me because of that. And then I'm but I love like horrible horror movies, you know, like I, I, I remember really enjoying like the second Blair Witch, like just. I need for there to be like some ham acting involved. If it's too scary, I won't like it. Like I've heard probably a thousand descriptions of hereditary and Midsommar and just can't watch them yet. Like true crime. I could literally listen to like anything right before bed. Like it doesn't matter, but architectural horror movies that are specifically designed to horrify you are uh, scary for me. <laughs> Do you remember like the very first time you saw a horror movie and what it was? Well, I saw Seven when I was 14, I want to say, like pretty old into my tweens and had to like sleep in my mom's bed for like months. It like totally destroyed my fucking life. (laughs) You say you grew up around it, meaning the industry itself or through friends and that kind of thing. (laughs) My best friend was goth 
in high school. I mean, she's still pretty goth now, but like in high school, she like shaved off her eyebrows and kind of like introduced me to that whole world. And then there's this great, where do you guys live? In Burbank. Oh, cool. Awesome. Well, do you, do you go to the gold bug ever? No, I haven't even heard of it. Oh, fuck. You're going to lose your minds. It's like the best store. I, I buy everything in my house from there. It's like really fancy. Uh, they have like a lot of like Mark Ryden art and, um, and just like beautiful, weird shit that I love. I just, I don't know. Maybe it was like a Harry Potter thing too. Like I loved little like tchotchkes and stuff around me at all times. It makes me happy. Like I really resonate with clutter core and just love everything goth. I love ghost stories. I loved ghost stories as a kid. And then there's this, do you guys remember that one of the girl with the green ribbon around her neck? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that was in my library and I would, as a kid and I would check it out all the time. And then Carmen Maria Machado in her body and other parties writes like a expanded version of that story as the first story. And I just was like, Oh wow, there's a world for me out there. You know, like there are people who think about the same stuff as me all day. The lyric book for Punisher has that kind of Edward Gorey kind of Victorian horror novel feel to it. Is that where that aesthetic came from? Who did you work with on that? So his name is Chris Riddell and he's, you know, made stuff for like J.K. Rowling and is just like his art is so gorgeous. And then there's this actually I discovered them at the Goldbug, the store, but they're called is it? Wow. I'm, oh, Open Sea. I always mix it up with my record label, which is I'm signed to Dead Oceans. I was going to say Dead Sea. No, uh, Open Sea Design. They make all the like beautiful, weird fonts and stuff. I really love their website. And then Chris did all the drawings because he he would come to my shows in london and draw live what was happening like do portraits of me and and uh and then one time we had the idea to like project what he was drawing onto a big screen behind me i've collaborated with him a lot so then he was like the first person i thought of for a lyric book when you were out in london did you go to uh, leaveston and the big wb harry potter tour out there no i think because tour just takes your whole day. Like you're only there for 12 hours or whatever. I did go to King's Cross and do the photo op and love it out there. But there's also, there's a witch store called Treadwells that I really love there that kind of has the same vibe. It's like really cozy. And, and I always spend all my money there. What would you say is your favorite Harry Potter movie from the franchise? Or is there one? Well, I remember when it got dark and I really liked that, like the third and fourth really kind of tone shifted. And then, I mean, I the fourth book, I think, is my favorite. And then the fourth movie is great. But I think the third movie was very important to me just because it, it did shift so harshly and it's super dark. So probably one of those, I'd have to say. Have you got sorted into a house? Oh, yeah. A guess. Uh... Ravenclaw? Slytherin. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> More my coloring than anything. Had you been yeah. to Harry Potter World in Florida before it came to LA or were you like super stoked when it came here to Universal? I was so stoked when it came to Universal because I had never been to Florida ever. I mean, I still haven't. It's really fucked up because we had actually like routed it into my tour that I was supposed to do that got canceled because of COVID. But we were there with the 1975 and they're playing like these giant venues so there's just more space around the shows for them to do promo because they're like a giant pop band so it frees me up to like do things on the days off and so we scheduled it into the tour of me going to harry potter world but but uh didn't get to go but i've been several times to the la one and it's it's so cool it's, it's amazing isn't it that forbidden journey ride to me is the best theme park dark ride ever created yeah like i think it beats disney head and shoulders like no problem totally yeah i mean i uh could spend all day there and i have like you just the rides like a million times i love it do you have a favorite snack are you a chocolate frogger or a butterbeer person i really like butterbeer but that shit is crazy like that shit is so it's like great to your bloodstream sugar but it's so good and i like uh, yeah i mean i have like since limited my <laughs> eating like i'm i'm now vegan so so i kind of i don't get to have like as much fun but it looks like tons of fun and i and i miss the candy and stuff but the packaging is all i need 
Your music leans heavy into the cinematic, and you tend to weaponize melody to create that sense of movement that one gets from a film score. And those are the kind of the moments that give us chills, like the intro and refrain of ICU. And I know the end, of course, it has that building tension. Is that something that is a conscious part of what you inject into melody or does it just seem to happen that way? Hmm. I think I gravitate towards scores and stuff as I take a lot of inspiration from that. And I also really love like ambient music. I really love Grouper and Juliana Barwick. I feel like that's playing in my house most of the time. So I take a lot of inspiration melodically from music with no words. And then, but I listen to a lot of songwriter music for cool lyrics. So I try to like combine them. What are some film composers you like? We would love to hear what it would be like for you to score a film. Of course, selfishly, we'd love it to be a gothic ghost story. Have you ever been yes. approached? And is it something you'd ever like to do? Yeah, I feel like I'm just I'm just like putting feelers out constantly for stuff like that. I really love I mean, obviously, like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And I think that's really cool, like a really cool career transition from Nine Inch Nails into film scoring. I think that's awesome. And and similarly, Mike Mogus and Nate Walcott do a lot of scoring. And I, I just think it's so cool when people who play music make that a career path. Production has also been kind of a benchmark of the experience, the Phoebe Bridgers experience. On record, the songs have a real three-dimensional feel to it. Like you could walk inside of them and you cast really unique worlds for us as listeners, almost building these churches individually for each of the songs. Is that deconstruction and oxidizing and decay a part that you labor on in the studio? Yeah, I think the way that I do it is I'll, I I like to take a lot of, of space in my recording. So I'll record you know, a batch of songs and then go on tour for six months and then come back and redo it. And that's kind of the way that I love to make records. I think that a lot of the writing is done after you hear what's done, been done wrong. So, you know, I mean, I think I know the end ended up having like 190 tracks on it, which is just ridiculous. Like we had to do so much deleting, but we just try stuff and try stuff and try stuff. There's like a chain that we recorded dropping a bunch of times. Like, yeah, we just love to experiment. And and I think the delete button is like my favorite creative tool. I was thinking about that. I know the end, uh, you do a very unique thing with that song in uh, a performance that I saw on, uh, I think it was NPR, Tiny Desk. You guys did a virtual, you're performing at the White House at the Oval Office. <laughs> I love that performance because it's something that I rarely see. I think I've seen it one other time, maybe in a live setting is where you're performing with um, your bandmates, Marshall and Harrison. And then it's like the first half of the song, it's all acoustically. And then you literally put on your instruments, get the electrics and then finish it off on a very aggressive note. Talk about bringing that to life, that creativity. I mean, it extends even into the album version where I kind of wanted to have a metal song in the middle of a ballad, because I think for me hearing the whole record and then just being kind of taken off guard by the production of that song was was important to me. So similar to Tiny Desk, you know, you're kind of encouraged to use acoustic instruments and and do stripped down versions because usually you're playing at Bob Boylan's desk. So I thought it would be funny to kind of break the fourth wall and have it kind of expand into like a metal song for that too. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Hark, a film of tender love and the screams of vampire death. 
Now there's a powerful motion picture that rips at your emotions. The Vampire Lovers. It brings you beautiful love and vampire evil, and it'll drive your mind through a thousand terror-filled moments. You'll hear whispers of warm desire become shrieks of chilling death. You'll taste the deadly passion of the vampire lovers and become a slave of the damned. You'll discover the sweet embrace and the deadly kiss of blood nymphs who refuse to die. The Vampire Lovers. It's in color, and it had to be rated R. Under 17 must be accompanied by a parent or adult guardian. Don't miss The Vampire Lovers. What is your experience and love of metal? How deep does it go? It goes really deep. I think I found an appreciation for it in a more real way later in life. Whereas I think before it was just kind of, I would listen to whatever. And so much of it is so campy. And it's funny to me that it it has so much to do with like straight guy culture, because I think it's like more costumes than anyone, very emotional, very focused on production and production value and like pyrotechnics and stuff. Like it's all very contrived. And that's what I like about it. I think that there's this pressure to be like spontaneous uh, and like, I don't know. I just love what it means for masculinity too. just, it's like you put on makeup and, and get on stage and, and like scream and it's supposed to be really hardcore. So I've always loved that. But, and I, and I love like t-shirt designs and stuff. I think they, metal has us beat like every other genre as far as merch yeah and you got that one with the phoebe bridges written in the iconic norwegian black metal design yeah that was just a kid like a norwegian kid that i emailed because i looked at his website and he does that it was like a hundred dollars to get him to write my name out in metal font it was so funny that is amazing it would be really cool, cool to hear you collaborate with like a norwegian black metal band i think that'd be yeah. amazing well, my uh, tour manager who sings on the first song on my record, he's Dutch and he's in a band called Das Oath. So that's pretty cool. I don't know how, but I'm taller. It must be something in the water. Everything's growing in our garden. You don't have to know that it's home. People come up to you at shows. This is a traditional thing. It's happened for a long time with you. And they share very deep stories about how your music affects them and how it feels to have that reflected back at them, like a cathartic expression of what they themselves are going through. Is there a secret or is there thoughtful intention in giving songs enough real estate, lyrically and emotionally, for the listener to live in them as well? Kind of the opposite. I think if you try to be too broad, you are cutting yourself off from people you don't even know exist who can resonate with stuff. Like it really surprises me who is drawn to the hyper specific in my lyrics. Like you think it's a unique experience and actually it's deeply shared with like an entire generation. And I think I I don't think too hard about the listening experience when I write songs, I think about my listening experience and if I enjoy singing it or playing it or if I'm proud of it, but I don't think really too far beyond that. And I think if you just make stuff that you like, you will draw the exact right people to your music. And if you try to think about what people would like, you might end up having a really long conversation with people you don't resonate with. Whereas I talk to fans and we agree (laughs) that I'm talking about something true And I think if you try to go too wide, it actually ends up isolating you from those experiences. I know that you've been in many bands uh, growing up, and then all of a sudden you start to put this together with Marshall and Harrison. Now that you guys are established, uh, you know, as part of your band, what is the songwriting process like? Is it more of a collaborative effort now, or is it more like you do the writing and they fill in the blanks when it comes time to put it together? I collaborate a lot. I collaborate even with people who aren't in my band permanently. Marshall and I write a lot. You know, Harry and I on tour, like we'll accidentally write something at Soundcheck or something. And I love that. But even beyond our bands, I'll write with Connor Oberst. I'll write with Christian Lee Hudson, whose record I produced. And I was talking to my friend Todd Fink from The Faint about this, but 
like sometimes you just wish there was another you in the room kind of to bounce ideas off of it's really easy to get snow blind and kind of uh disenchanted with your own process and having somebody else there to kind of affirm what's great about what you're making and maybe throw a line or two in or or say aren't you talking about this and you're like no but i should it just really propels the process forward are there any places that you like to go that really inspire you to write hikes lots of hiking i love big sur so much i love a writing trip because it's hard to write in the place you live i think i have a lot but i think it's nice to kind of get cozy and be in a fun new place and and be working on something like like people talk about the idea of how it's nice to you know sit at an office even if it's a home office or just have a space where you're always writing and i try to create that for myself at home but i dated an art major in high school who whose college class took him to Disneyland and they take every like freshman college class there that I I really I love that idea that like Disneyland is like a architectural masterpiece and I find the same like inspiration from going on tour or you know climbing up to the top of fucking Notre Dame or like walking around a beautiful river like it all it all just kind of gets you out of your intrusive thoughts and monotonous bullshit that's going through your head all day. Talk to us about your interest in true crime. Yeah. I mean, I think I always, I wrote a song about it on my first record because there wasn't so much of a community. There really wasn't. There was like, you know, I probably wrote that song in like 2011 and would go on like YouTube rabbit holes and felt like I was a murderer and felt like I had this sick fascination and it was a lot of like OCD thoughts where I'd be like, don't think about that. Don't think about don't, don't think about that. And then it would all come flooding because, of course, you're obsessed with it. And then when true crime kind of started popping up or even just having conversations with my friends about it or since writing that song, people are like, oh, my God, I'm obsessed with that stuff. And I couldn't stop reading about John Wayne Gacy when I heard about it or whatever. Sometimes I think I'm a killer. I scared you. Even scared myself by talking about Dahmer on your couch. But I can't sleep next to a body, even harmless in death. Plus, I'm pretty sure I'd miss you and faking sleep to count your breath. Can I kill? And then I love uh, my favorite murder. It's like my favorite podcast. It just, it's like, yeah, it's like female platonic intimacy without having to be involved in any sort of relationship. And it's true crime and they're funny and they're, you know, empathetic human beings who I like to listen to and trust. And I think it's just such a weird balance that I think you could only find by happenstance. Like if anybody had tried, if a studio had been like, try to make this podcast and act like your friends, it just would have sucked. But I, yeah, I don't know. It, it changed the way I think about true crime and Michelle McNamara changed the way I think about the internet even and how you can literally solve crimes by being into it. I think that there's like a lot of good coming from, from that scene. Do you watch Bailey Sarian? Have you ever checked out her show? No, what's that? So every Monday she does like a makeup and mystery Monday and she puts on makeup and tells a true crime story. I get that stuff recommended on YouTube. I should start watching it. <laughs> All the stories are so insane. Is there one in particular that, that I don't know, plagues you? One that you think about often that you just you can't get out of your head? I think about Jeffrey Dahmer a lot, which I think that was the that was the song that I wrote. A killer on the first record is about that obsession. I think that what makes me obsessive about it is that he's so, so clearly, I mean, he has a God complex as an asshole, like everybody else, but, but Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy and kind of the other big names have such a like, fuck you, everybody. And it's society's fault. And nobody understands me kind of attitude. That's so 
boring and stupid. Like everyone's like, oh, Ted, Ted Bundy's so smart. I'm like, he's a fucking idiot. Oh my God. I don't want to hear that guy talk ever. Like he thinks he's so fucking smart. And the way that they eventually got him to confess was like trying to make him like someone tricked him into thinking he, that he was being consulted as an expert. And so he's like, hmm, the feelings which I, and he just, it makes my skin crawl. Cause he's just, we've all talked to that guy at the bar that thinks they're like a genius. And Jeffrey Dahmer one, you know, the Midwest accent is so scary. And two, he just really was like, it's not my parents' fault. It's nobody's fault. I'm sick. It was obsessive. Like the way that he's kind of breaking it apart. He definitely thinks he's special and like everybody else is a narcissist, but just hearing him talk about it and, and be like, it's nobody's fault. Not angry. I'm really sorry. It's super gross. Was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. <It's> so cold. <laughs> there's something so, so much scarier about it and so cold. Yeah. And I think that there's a need for them and everybody else to kind of like romanticize it when it's actually just like mental illness that could have gotten helped somewhere along the way. If it wasn't for like repression and kink shaming and stuff, I think there'd be a lot less serial killers, you know? Like if you had a place early on where you were like exposed to what is okay, you might not sexualize fucking, you know, ruining lives and killing people. So I think that's really important. Like the, and what I like about my favorite murder is kind of the stress on mental health care and, and how much insane asylums, you know, and which you're probably not supposed to say that anymore. Right? <laughs> Sounds like a weird thing to say. Right. But, yeah. I don't um, know the politically yeah, correct term yeah, for that. Yeah. Anymore, but um, yeah. Uh, all these places being shut down correlated directly with a, such a huge rise in crime. And yeah, I don't know. I just like there being an answer for it about being like, all you need is exposure to help not to be shamed early on when you like start talking about things and everybody has like an abusive past. And I don't know. I just, I just like the idea that there, there, there may actually be an answer and it correlates pretty directly with like, a cycle of abuse or an impoverished neighborhood and uh you know the police not giving a shit or whatever i just i just i just like that now it doesn't seem like it's going nowhere like the true crime conversation if you weren't a musician would you want to be like a prosecutor or a homicide detective would that interest you i think it would be really hard to be a cop i think that there's like too much romanticizing of cops and i think that like participating in that system would be really hard for me. But again, I love the Michelle McNamara, like hop online, you know, solve crimes. Yeah. 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 Since you mentioned Dahmer, I was thinking about that venue called the rave in Milwaukee. Have you performed there yet? Or uh, is there any plans to make a stop there soon? I think I have played in Milwaukee. I don't remember the venue, but yeah, I mean, definitely. There's two things about it. There's two things. One it's haunted and two uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's apartments across the street. Wow. I think, you know, I think I did hear that, but I doubt I played there. Maybe it was like a sound person in Milwaukee telling me that we were close or something. But yeah, I don't know. I remember thinking about it a lot the first time I was in Milwaukee, just being like, wow. Because I think they, they demolished it and built a playground, which is super dark. Makes no sense. I wanted to talk about Savior Complex. The melody of that song is just unbelievable. It's got a graceful tumble to it. It's got salvation and it's got resolution and it just sounds so thoughtful and careful. Do you remember where you were when you came up with the melody for that song? I was asleep. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I have a really funny. Ooh, I wonder if I can. I mean, this, I'll find it because I found it the other day. Um, let me see. Hmm. Dream. I'm like searching in my. Oh, did you make a voice memo of it? I did. Melody from a dream. April 18th, 2018. This is psychotic sounding because I'm like so half asleep. You guys are going to laugh. And I was also sleeping next to bandmates. <laughs> we were all like on tour and like sharing hotel rooms. This is um, amazing. This is really funny. Oh, 
Or try the octave down. Isn't that funny? That's wild. Wow. But I, but I, love, I love going. Has that happened to you before? Or is this the one and only time that's happened? Yeah, not before or since. It was pretty weird. And, and I remember, you know, like, I mean, I, I love to write down my dreams or like record voice memos of them too, because I like keeping track and, uh, and it makes you dream more if you write them down and then it becomes a habit. And I, and I feel like I have this like other world that I live in, but when I don't write them down, I, I barely remember them. And it's really hard to motivate yourself in the morning to roll over and and do something. So I remember being like, am I really going to like go grab my fucking phone and like the middle of sleep? I wonder if it says like what time of day that was. But I remember being the middle of the night for sure. It doesn't, but it was the middle of the night and I just made myself record it. So I wonder if there have been other times and I just don't. Our favorite performance of that song is when you played it on Fallon from a place that is very near and dear to our hearts, the Magic Castle here in LA. Yes. From someone who might not know, tell them about the significance of that place. Yeah, well, it's very elusive, especially growing up here. It's like you have to be invited and it's super haunted and there are trap doors and secret magic shows and it's fancy and you have to dress up and and then i remember when i went the first time it was just so awesome like i think magic is like its own special science and i wanted my whole house decorated like that and then i was like (laughs) you know can we record there and we reached out and they gave us like a daytime tour and like told us about it it's it's so funny like it's just it's so cool to see in a different light yeah, I can imagine. And then, yeah, you collaborated with the ghost piano player, Irma. Irma, yeah. Nice. <laughs> it's so fun. Is there something you've seen there that, or a magic trick you've seen perhaps that blew your mind that you still go, oh my God, how did they do that? Definitely. But it's been a long time. I went, I went for brunch once. which is Brunch really is the fun. best, oh, yeah. Brunch is yes. so good. Yeah. Those waffles. So fun. But my producer, actually, Ethan Gruska, is a magician as well. No way! Yeah, and he's done some magic tricks for me that are like, I'm just like, how the fuck? You know, he's really, really good. Is he in the video for I Know the End with the card trick? That's him. Yep. Wow! (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Have you been to Brookledge? No. You would freaking go crazy over Brookledge. So Brookledge is a house built in the 30s. It's in Hancock Park. It was made by a creator of magic effects and illusions. And he built a theater, a Spanish style theater behind the house on the other side of a secret garden. There's a bridge and a brook that runs through that whole community. He sold that house to the Larson family. Yeah, it's in yeah Hancock Park area. So he sold that house to the Larson family in the 40s. The Larson family used to have all their magic shows at that place before they built the Magic Castle. And they reopened it because the Larson family still owns Brookledge. And they have private invite only magic and vaudeville shows you go into their backyard and you go into this theater and it's literally like taking a magical journey back in time. And I think you would just fucking be obsessed with it. Yeah. Photos right now. It's like totally up my alley. I would be obsessed to see her play there. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. yeah that's another, awesome. another amazing uh, venue choice. Yeah. The theater looks fucking sweet. Speaking of magic and spirituality in general, do you have like tendencies to, go into magic yourself, real magic and witchcraft and and things like that. Is that a part of what you do in your daily life? In a pretty real way. Like I, um, I mean, I love fantasy and old stories and stuff, but I also, I think the most magical thing that I do, I mean, I really love this astrology app by uh, Chani Nicholas. It's great. And I do her like new moon prompts every month, which is pretty witchy, but I also do this thing called scripting, which I highly recommend, which is you journal as if the things that you're asking the universe for have happened. So for me, it's a a lot of just real life stuff, like communicating with somebody about a specific thing. And so if you're scripting, you're like, we had this great conversation. I said this, they said this back. And it forces your brain to kind of acknowledge what it already knows is going to happen. Instead of dissociating and being like, oh, I'll think about that later. It's like, okay, 
I'll be really nervous before I play the show or do this recording or something like let's walk through what I what I know about myself and what I know about this other person. And it's super handy. That is really cool. And how did you learn about that? My witch friend. (laughs) Her name's Grace McCrave. She's a great um, Instagram follow. She's got some really cool takes on on how to be a witch in this world. You know, I was was interested about your songs here. Uh, Your songs come from such uh, personal stories or experiences, especially like Kyoto on this latest release, Punisher. Is there ever that thought or concern about crossing some invisible line and revealing too much about an experience or person in your life? Yes, but I don't think it comes till later, honestly. I think I, if I was constantly thinking about how people were going to interpret something, I wouldn't write very good songs. So at this point, I just write and then I think about it later. And I have yet to edit myself, maybe like one word here or there that's a little too specific. But for the most part, I don't really edit that much. You've performed in some spooky places. The killer video was filmed, I think, at an abandoned tuberculosis asylum. And then you did I Know the End from a haunted theater in Covina for Seth Meyers. Have you had any experiences that you define as paranormal? Hmm. Yes. I'm obsessed with this with thin places, which just means like the place between here and whatever else there is (laughs) like a place where the kind of fabric of our reality is thin and i feel like everybody has those experiences like whether it's looking out over the grand canyon or just some you know you're looking through a tree on your morning walk or something but i feel like i have them daily i've never had like a haunted house situation or anything i think i want it too much but i've definitely been you know lying in a park and then and then felt connected in a deeper way when you talk of all those places there seems to be a certain reverence for la in what you do it's something that comes alive in your music i find there's kind of that intangible energy of a city full of dreams and ghosts bursting at the seams (laughs) right in in southern california and la and hollywood in particular what are your feelings about la I think it's all I've ever known, you know? So I love it. I think, I think it takes a long time to love it knowing now so many friends who've moved here, but I really do. I think it's great. I think it's, you know, I love Joan Didion. I love hearing her talk about California and, um, and just kind of, yeah, that a place where people go to follow their dreams and, and lots of like weird, unexpected things happen. Like, you don't become an actor. So you open a weird restaurant and then you're like this crazy personality that people come talk to, or it's just so old, you know, it feels like an old place and it feels like there's lots of history everywhere. There's a line in Punisher about walking by the house where you live with Snow White. And the speed kicks Are those the cottages that you're talking about at like Hyperion at the corner in Los Feliz where Disney built those places for animators? Yeah. So Elliot Smith lived there for years and built a studio there. And so that's kind of like the Silver Lake lore about him, like walking out of his house and going to get coffee at Gelson's, which is just so weird because I walk by there like every day. That's insane. Those cottages go up for rent every so often. Have you ever had the opportunity to maybe go there and see the actual place where he lived and wrote songs? I've never been inside. I walk by all the time, but it's in Mulholland Drive, too. So I know what the inside looks like because of that movie. Oh, it's in? Really? It's where they live in Mulholland Drive, yeah. No way! Wow. Like his exact oh, place? No. Like apparently where the one Elliot Smith lives in? I think they're all the same, but I'm not sure which one is in Mulholland Drive. Okay. And I don't even know what one Elliot lived in, but I think they're all laid out like the exact same. So I saw that you have an Elliot Smith and Peter Krebs 7-inch that was like super hard to find. Do you love the chase of tracking something down? Does that like thrill you? Because that does that for me, like <laughs> trying to get like rare stuff. I love that. 
Yes, definitely. But I think stuff I'm actually going to use. I'm not a big collector of things that I'm not going to touch. I love having things around me that are special that serve a purpose. So whether it's like, I don't know, I just, I have to be careful at like a flea market. I'm like, when am I going to use this bar cart? You know, like I have to like be realistic with what is around me at all times. So records are like the best outlet for that because I know I'll listen. Do you have like a grail vinyl that you haven't been able to track down that you want? Hmm. I don't think so. I think I've gotten pretty good at at finding things. And I think I I do like the streaming test where I'll listen a bunch of times online and then be like, does this deserve a, a space in my record collection? But I miss that's one of the things I miss the most is I'll uh, I used to go to Amoeba all the time and look through the little seven inch boxes because it's just so unorganized that you end up stumbling upon weird stuff that you didn't even know you're looking for. And I think that's, that's what I miss so much about record shopping is like getting something you didn't expect. Yeah. That thrill of discovery. It's so fun. What is your relationship with creativity? Like now after two albums, does the love of the craft ever get lost in the responsibility of the career? Not yet. I'm waiting for that to happen, but I but I think I have a pretty good again, I kind of have to just put it out of my mind what I'm and that I'm talking to people because I don't have to release stuff, you know? I just can write and then keep it for myself if I want. But I've never I've never had to do that. You've been so warm with press and and done a lot of it recently, especially in in quarantine and promoting the album since you can't really tour or anything like that. In talking about it and reflecting on the creation. Is there anything that you find you get out of that process? Yes. I think it, um, this record specifically will mean more to me about this past year than I think when I was writing it, I really like replaying stuff and just having a little bit of perspective. That's like my favorite part of putting stuff out. Congratulations on the Grammy nominations. What do you have planned for the big night? I'm not performing. I don't know who's performing. I'm excited to see music, but uh, I'm definitely going to be wearing something goth. So that's. I love Death Cab for Cutie and Ben Gibbard. And I saw that he covered motion sickness. I'm assuming you're a fan of Death Cab as well. And I wanted to know what your favorite Death Cab or Postal Service song is. The license and registration demo. Oh, yes. My favorite song. I love I love it. It's just like there's this weird little drum machine, but I love Death Cab and Postal Service. So it's, it's a hard choice, but I think that's my favorite. Oh, and last, we got to get in something about Gilmore Girls. I had heard somewhere that you're a Gilmore Girls fan. I don't know if it's true, but we wanted to confirm that. Yes, deeply. Very comforting to me, you know. Isn't it? It's something you can put on in the background and it, it feels like you're there in Stars Hollow. You know exactly. what is really interesting? That's our Sorry, son. we have four kids. It's like a zoo here. Yeah. No one can go to school. Okay, buddy, we're wrapping it up, dude. Okay, go see Scarlett and she'll give you a cookie. Okay, there. That does it. Okay, she'll we'll be right there. You. I'm so sorry. This is the first time this has ever happened since. That's awesome. So, anyways, a funny story is I joined a soccer team and Alexis Bladell was on the soccer team. With, so cool. And we were the hustlers. I mean, we kicked butt. We we made it to the finals. We won the championship game. She is like the nicest person. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah, I was I had a dream of like starting a soccer team soon because I'm bored and I love soccer. Listen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with yes. us. We appreciate it. It was like delightful. Yes. Amazing. Thanks so much. <laughs> that was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 207. Special thanks to our guest, Phoebe Bridgers. Follow her at Phoebe Bridgers on Instagram and at Phoebe underscore Bridgers on Twitter. At time of release, her latest album, Punisher, is available everywhere now. Music for this episode from Phoebe Bridgers. Production tracks provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screens thanks for listening to another episode of the boo crew podcast Hot.
the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network Home of the Boo Crew For horror-centric interviews SCP archives Weekly full cast storytelling Horror queers Genre commentary from an LGTBQ perspective And creepy For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas Listen free wherever you stream audio And at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts